Hello and welcome to the Building Your Path podcast. This podcast records the stories of those who have achieved their own form of success in their respective fields. Today we have Dr. Cliff Brunk, a retired UCLA biology professor. Please enjoy. Okay, so what would be your definition of success? Well, I think my definition of this success is really being in, in a positive relationship with the world in general. And that kind of means that you got to be aware of what's going on and try and position yourself so that you're part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And then that kind of falls over into interpersonal relationships. I think as we look at as we look at things, I think the most successful things in my life have been the relationships that I've set up, um, largely with students that I've had, and also with you know friends that we met along the way. But those are the kind of touchstones: uh, people, and uh, trying to be aware of the overall situation and position yourself so that you're in a, a harmonious relationship with both of those. Okay. Uh, how does this enter, uh, how does this um, correlate with your, the dog petter philosophy that you're talking <laughs> the about? The dog petter philosophy. Well, the, the dog petter philosophy, pretty easily. What you're looking for in these situations is win-win situations, where not only is it working for you, but it's also working for the individual you're interacting with. And so the dog better philosophy, I see as a win-win-win situation. Uh, we walk quite a bit and frequently come upon people walking their dogs. And I almost invariably ask if I can pet the dogs. And you gotta ask if you can pet them because not all dogs or not all owners are up for this. But in this situation, what you, what I enjoy petting the dogs, the dogs are, very nice animals. The dogs enjoy being petted, usually. And even more frequently, the owners enjoy having their dogs admired. And so this is really a win-win-win situation. And that's the sort of thing you're looking for. You're looking for situations in which um, whatever you're doing, your, your, your uh, uh, work that you're involved in, uh, has that quality to it, that it's something you enjoy, but it's also beneficial to others around you. Very nice. And uh, you weren't born in LA, were you? No, 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 I was born in, I was born in a much bigger city at that time, not much bigger, it was about the same size, it was Detroit, Michigan. When I was a kid, I was born in 1940, and when I was a kid growing up in Detroit, Detroit was just slightly larger than Los Angeles. Uh, not so much anymore. Detroit has one of the very few cities in the United States that has lost population, and Los Angeles is a mega city. But I was, I was born in Detroit in 1940, and then in 1950, we moved, my father retired, we moved to Northern Michigan, and that's where I went to high school and, and that. I had an unusual situation in the sense that um, in the 1940s, in the mid-40s, uh, we got a television. Um, and so I was exposed to television from the age 10, or from the age, oh, probably seven or eight until 
time I was 10 years old. Then we moved to Northern Michigan and there was no television until I was a senior in high school. So I had been exposed to television and it was pretty, pretty primitive television, early on television. And then the next time I had any television exposure was later. And that's kind of interesting because I think that's one of the big things that's different between the way I grew up and the way my grandchildren are growing up. They're about the age I was when I left Detroit. And that is the tremendous amount of exposure to uh, everything. Television, but uh, videos and video games and everything else. It's different world. Fantastic. And um, you were talking about how as a child you said uh, you were dyslexic and did, therefore for that reason you're more attracted to things that you would work with with your hands. Yeah. I didn't know that I was dyslexic. I think my parents probably uh, suspected it. But I found that reading was difficult for me. I mean, it, it, I, I could read, but you know, it wasn't something I did for fun. And so I think I channeled a lot of my interests into um, building things. And uh, uh, I, I, I built models. Uh, early on, I built model airplanes and that sort of stuff. I really enjoyed that. In those days, it wasn't really what you do now where you would just assemble them. In those days, you, you cut out the balsa wood and you glued it in and then you put paper on. So it was an elaborate process. And then later I would build a, you know, cars. I had, a little, I had a little gasoline engine, built cars, and got early on into electronics. And that was, that was kind of neat because this was uh, post-Second World War and there was a lot of war surplus material. And so you could get uh, very elaborate electronic radio uh, systems. And we would take those apart and reconfigure them, etc. And it was, it was great fun. And then, of course, everybody likes to have a car. And I was lucky enough to have a Model A. And Model A's were wonderful. You could do everything, literally everything on the Model A yourself. And with just, you know, a little bit of help and supervision. Today, you really gotta have, you know, expertise. <laughs> Different story, yeah. And so this tinkering with your hands, this is what led you to, uh, you know, get your, you said, you said your amateur radio license and getting into more electronical engineering, correct? Well, yeah, it is. And it, it's interesting because I did, I, when I was, a, I guess, a junior in high school, I got an amateur radio license. Then when I graduated high school, I got a commercial radio license. And that turned out to be a real boon because when I went to college, I... I uh, used the commercial radio license to uh, be a transmitter engineer on weekends for the uh, college station. That was WKAR in, in East Lansing, Michigan. And unlike the, the college radio stations here on the West Coast are very prominent. The KPCC and KCRW are both college stations. In Michigan, uh, WKAR was one of the three major uh, radio stations and that was great fun because um, it I worked almost every weekend and it I had virtually nothing to do except take meter readings I could do my studies and get paid for it and so it was kind of fun and uh, this and this was done at Michigan State University correct where you Michigan State in, University it, you majored in your electrical engineering I majored in electrical engineering and that was pretty that was pretty performa. I mean, 
you came in and there was a prescribed set of courses and you took them. And as, as I remember in the four years that I was there, I may have had one or two, maybe three uh, elective subjects. Everything else was prescribed. And so you just kind of went through it. And uh, that was... And, yeah, and so after that, I guess that's when you came here, right? To graduate school? I, yeah, I, <clears throat> I had I decided I wanted to uh, go on to graduate school. The, the question was uh, about three quarters of the class, uh, engineering class that I graduated, went on to work. And I interviewed a number of places. And actually, some of them were pretty exciting. Uh, uh, Bell Labs at uh, Murray Hill was a very exciting possibility. But I decided that graduate school would be more more expanding. And it, it turned out to be that way. I, I went to Stanford as an electrical engineering student and did a master's degree in electrical engineering. But in that period of time, became exposed to uh, a biophysics program that they had there. And also um, realized that engineering was probably not going to be as exciting as it had been for me as a kid, and that getting into biology, and, and what, what was the beginning of molecular biology at that time, was a much more interesting path to follow. And not only that, it, 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 it led into what I would call a um, ideal job situation, or dream job situation, in which you could do research, and teaching combined. The teaching allows you to share the things that you've learned and make a lot of relationships. And the research allows you to find new things. Uh, you're working with graduate students. That's a little more of an intense and close relationship. And we're sitting here because your father was one of my graduate students. And so these, these relationships start out in a, uh, a teacher or professor uh, student relationship, but they mature into lifetime relationships in many in many cases. So that's that's and that's really a dream job. Teaching is really a great job. So, with electrical engineering switching to biology, that's a major switch. And so. How do you believe that that incorporates your definition of success? And like, how do you do you not do you believe that electrical engineering was not fulfilling you in that sense? Electrical engineering, <clears throat> in general, um, at least at the time I came out, it's even more so now. Puts you into a large corporate arrangement where you're probably going to be working on uh, some, for the better word, me mega project with a lot of other other people and making a contribution. Moving into um, biophysics, into research in a university, you pretty much become what you might call an independent entrepreneur. You're setting your own research goals and you're working on things. Um, a little problem along the way, and that is if you're going to teach biology and you've never had a biology course since high school, you're going to have to learn some biology somewhere. And you can learn a lot of biology or for that matter, almost any subject, as a faculty member. And so, uh, staying ahead of the class, uh, you're uh, well prepared to learn things, and you've got real motivation. <laughs> and you said this was a very uh, prominent time for biology, correct? What were it, some developments happening during the time? Well, uh, when I 
one of my passions is is understanding the origin of life and essentially um, Stan Miller and Harold Urey had just uh, been able to synthesize um, amino acids under conditions that mimicked the early Earth's atmosphere and so uh, we started off I started off working in a lab that which which were mimicking the Miller-Urey experiments so that we were just opening out but but molecular biology was just coming into its own. We were, uh, we had just become absolutely convinced that DNA was the genetic material, and this was coming forward. But we, at that time, we still didn't know what the genetic code was. Uh, Francis Crick had had laid out the way in which protein synthesis probably went, but there was a real question as to wow how the different codons specified different amino acids. So molecular biology was clearly coming forward, but it was in its early stages. And that was really, that was really fun to follow. And during my, my career, uh, that bloomed. We got into recombinant DNA technology. We got into the biotechnology things. A lot of my students, uh, went on and worked in that area. Um, and it was, it was kind of the heyday of molecular uh, biology. I was very fortunate. Uh, soon after I came to UCLA, um, a senior faculty member, an evolutionary biologist, a very prominent evolutionary biologist, joined the faculty. And again, we formed a, a very close personal relationship. We just liked each other. And so we had coffee almost every morning. And I learned an enormous amount about evolutionary biology over coffee in the morning. And that's a great way to go. And so as my career developed, I actually shifted more from straight molecular biology. I was working on DNA repair and switched pretty much into molecular evolution. And that became another area which was extremely productive during my lifetime. Uh, trying to work out the relationships between organisms had been difficult. Um, it's very hard to tell what the relationship between a human being and a bacteria is because they share very few uh, physical, uh, physical structures that are similar. However, if you look at the DNA, if you look at the ribosomal RNA, particularly as as uh, Carl Woese was doing, you can make a relationship of all living organisms. And that the move into molecular evolution was, again, facilitated by the ability to determine DNA sequences. And that all came about, oh, in the uh, late uh, 70s, uh, early 80s. And that, again, was the, the area that I had chosen to go into molecular biology and then molecular evolution were areas that were being developed and tremendously interesting things were coming out. Um, in the late 70s, uh, Carl Woese using DNA sequences realized that there were, that not all these little tiny microbes were bacteria. In fact, there were two very distinct families, bacteria and archaea. And that was based primarily 
on DNA sequence uh, information. And so and that, that and turned so out to be interesting. And you had your uh, PhD during all this time, correct? You, where were you trying to get your PhD? No, I, I, I finished my PhD in 67. And so that was pretty much of a straight through, you know, yeah. And this, so by 67, uh, we, that was just about the time we got the genetic code determined and the elements of way proteins were evolved was that. Uh, DNA sequencing came later, etc. So, the, the my program was really actually pretty straightforward. Although I had not planned it that way, I went into graduate school as a gra as a electrical engineer, then shifted into biophysics, uh, pretty much a smooth transition, and then finished a degree and went on a postdoc, as most people did. I <laughs> I was a little derelict and hadn't arranged for um, support for the postdoc and so um, when I realized I was finishing up and needed to go on a postdoc I made application but wasn't sure and so in that interim period I came down and gave a seminar at UCLA and again personal relationships hit it off with a guy who was the chairman of the department and uh, we had similar research interests and uh, compatible personalities and so he offered me a job. And so I was just finishing up my PhD. I said, hey, I hope to go on postdoc, but I can't turn down a job because a postdoc may not come through. And he said, fine, we'll, we'll give you a, a position. And if the postdoc comes through, we'll give you a leave of absence for that. And I, I had that, went off to Denmark on postdoc. And so, did you have a did you have a plan during this time, or was it just? Because it sounds like a lot of switching up here. It's a lot of switching. Yeah, I had a plan. Uh, the plan was to find something interesting to do that I could interact with people very strongly. That was the plan. But there was a lot, as you put it, a lot of switching up again, and that's the other facet of this whole thing. You you're well advised to have a plan. And you're also well advised to realize that that plan is not likely to be followed in every detail. And so many of the things that were the most advantageous to me, taking a position at UCLA directly, well, actually just before I finished my doctorate, was really a good idea because that freed me up when I went on postdoc. I already had a position to come back to and it allowed me to uh, enjoy and explore different things on the postdoctoral fellowship than I otherwise would. I had a couple of colleagues who had done the correct thing. They had a postdoc lined up well before they finished their degrees, went on postdoc, and then found themselves looking for positions uh, and finding that uh, their postdoctoral experience was uh, overshadowed by looking for a position. So I think what you want to do is I think you want to have a plan, a good plan, and then be open to changes. And I think you correctly identified. In my case, there were lots of changes. I, oddly enough, I still see myself as an engineer and I've been retired almost 10 years now. I spend uh, as much time working on 
engineering problems, amateur radio, <laughs> as I do on biology. It was very interesting. And how was how was the job itself? Like, how was life as a UCLA professor? Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, actually, terrific. And again, it's one of those lucky things. When I joined the faculty at UCLA in 1967, UCLA was just just blossoming. Uh, Charles Young had become chancellor, and in his inauguration, he had, in his inauguration address, he said, UCLA is a second-rank university, and we're going to move into the first ranks. And that's actually what happened. It did move into the first ranks. Many of us who joined the faculty in the 60s, late 60s, really saw UCLA as a stepping stone. And almost all of the faculty that joined when I did retired from UCLA. UCLA grew, and many fewer used UCLA as a stepping stone moving out. So again, it's one of those things, you know, you have a plan, you take a job, and then you look for opportunity, and you go with the opportunities. So what would be your advice for someone to try to find their dream job? Like how would they go about doing it? Well, I think the first thing you got to do is try and figure out what you like to do. <laughs> if you like, I mean, not everybody likes to teach. My, my son is a computer scientist. Uh, when I was a professor in the summers, he would help teach uh, some of the classes we had. We, we, we did high school teacher um, seminars. And he was good in computer science, and computers were just coming in at that time. So he came in and, and, and did some computer science. And all the, all the teachers would come back and say, he's really good, he should be a teacher. And he didn't want to teach. He doesn't want to teach. He works at Google, and he doesn't teach at all. He, he loves computer science problems, which are really very esoteric. <laughs> So you got to find out who you are. If you like people, then for gosh sakes, get a job that puts you in contact with people. If you do not prefer dealing with that, then find some job that has rewarding problems for you to solve. And uh, you're talking, could you describe your sophisticated sense of happiness? So you're talking about your optimization of happiness? I, I, I guess. I guess my, my concept of happiness, I think we all you know, want to be happy, and my concept of happiness usually includes a broader spectrum, and that is things that make me happy usually involve interacting with other people. I mean, I've enjoyed this discussion with you very much. I've enjoyed your father for a long time. So there's, there's an interpersonal relationship there's, I think almost all of us are accomplishment-oriented. And what we like to do is we like to solve some kind of problem or make some kind of accomplishment. And that also involves having other people recognize or share in that accomplishment. So my concept of happiness then is doing something that I like and sharing it with others. Fantastic. <laughs> Well, uh, thank, you very, very, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Brunk. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Not particularly, except that this has been fun. I've enjoyed talking with you about this. Well, thank you so much. Fantastic. All right. Good.
Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on.